Welcome to another inspirational message from Elam Church, Christchurch City. For more information and great content, jump over to our website at elamchurchchristchurchcity.org. We hope you enjoy this message. We are in a series exploring the Ten Commandments. We have been over the past possibly six weeks. I think this is maybe the seventh part. And so uh, this morning... I've got the privilege of uh, sharing the next installment of this with you guys. And just as a reminder, before we get into the specifics of this commandment today, recognizing the context within which these Ten Commandments were given is really, really important. God had delivered His people from captivity in Egypt. They had cried out to God, and with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand, God had delivered His people from captivity and brought them out of the nation of Egypt. And then God had always said, hey, I'm not just going to take you out. I'm going to bring you into a land of promise. I have a future for you. I want to establish you as my people who would proclaim me to all nations through the way that you live your life. And so as God had brought his people out of captivity, they had become so accustomed to the life of captivity that God understood that he had to give guidance to his people of what it looked like to live for him in a way that would glorify him in the sight of other nations. And so the Ten Commandments were part of the Old Testament law that was God clarifying for his people how to live for him in their worship of God and in their relationships with one another so that God would be glorified in them as a people. So the commandments and the the law of God were never given by God to his people as the means by which they earned his love, earned their way into his good books, or proved how holy they were. We can have that sort of perception in our minds. God never gave the law as hoops to jump through to prove that you're good enough for him. The law was an expression, the giving of the law, including the Ten Commandments, in itself is an expression of God's grace to people who he had already delivered from captivity, who he had already called to belong to him and be his people and worship him alone. So we've just got to be careful that we don't read the Old Testament law and interpret it as hoops to jump through, as rules to prove that we're good enough somehow for God's love. It's all about grace with God. We relate to God on the basis of his grace primarily. And so God in his grace and wisdom invited Moses up onto Mount Sinai where he gave him what we know as the 10 commandments. This morning we're zeroing in on chapter 20 verse 17 of Exodus. This one command it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anyone struggled with looking at your neighbor's donkey recently? (laughs) I'm okay with that one, as it turns out. (laughs) Might be more of a challenge if a neighbor had a donkey, but there we go. But again, it's important to obviously understand Um, a bit more of the background and the context of the command so that we can understand the the relevance of this for our lives today. What's meant by coveting? That's obviously the common word here. To covet means to desire something greatly. It's not the 
wanting of something that's wrong in itself, but wanting it at the expense of someone else. Wanting it from a place or a motive of jealousy or envy, which is the heart behind this particular commandment. Though we may not relate to the donkey or the ox material, (laughs) I think we can all relate in some way, shape, or form to wanting things from a motive of, of maybe a little bit of envy or jealousy kind of creeps in, where we compare ourselves to other people. This commandment is really rooted in comparison. It's the sense of here I am with my life and my stuff, and when I look out, at everyone else, I think, oh, oh, maybe I'm better off than some, but I'm not as well off of others. And, oh, gee, I'd really, I want to be there where they are. And there's a real danger in living our lives with this comparison thing being a real key thought or motivation in our lives. It can just in, end up making us either feel inferior to others or superior to others, and both of those are negative things. I was kind of thinking this week, like reflecting on the Ten Commandments as a whole, it's possible to kind of maybe question the place of this particular commandment. Like we can easily grasp why stuff like murder and and stealing and and worshipping God is number one. We get the place of them. They're important things. But you can kind of think, man, what's so wrong with just wanting stuff? It seems to be sort of on a different level. But although it may seem harmless at times to desire things, there are dangers that go hand in hand with allowing an attitude of covetousness to really drive our lives. See, coveting other people's stuff can be like a doorway that leads to many other sins. This is what we see consistently in Scripture. The classic example of this is King David in the Old Testament. King David, incredible king, but he wasn't perfect. He had a whole episode in his life that was just pretty horrific. He fancied the wife of one of his mighty men. He sleeps with her. Then he tries to cover it up. He conspires to have the husband killed in action so that he can then marry this woman that he's already slept with to try and cover the whole thing up. It's just a string of horrendous decisions, one after the other, that had significant collateral damage for other people. But it began with wanting something that did not belong to him. In 2 Samuel 11, it says, One evening David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. That's that's an overview, clearly, of the events that took place. But it began with David seeing desiring inordinately, and then choosing to act in line with that desire. What we're kind of discovering here, I suppose, is the idea that there's this tension between what we have and what we don't have. That's going to be one of the realities of our lives, always. 
And so it's this balance or this tension that exists between covetousness as a way that we can live our lives and contentment as the way that God calls us to live our lives. See, unless we can find somehow contentment in what we have, we will always wrestle with wanting what someone else has. And the society that we live in feeds a culture of discontentment. The temptation to covet and want what other people have is, surrounds us every day. We're immersed in it. Social media feeds this culture. It's always presenting an image of who other people are and what they have. And you know, social media is an amoral thing in itself. It's not neither good nor evil, but it's how it's used that determines whether it's a good or a bad thing. And, but if we take responsibility for our lives, if I'm scrolling through social media every day, and if the end result of it is that I just end up feeling rubbish about my own life because all I'm seeing on there are celebrities who airbrush their pictures to make themselves look so successful, and so their kids are always smiling and they're never arguing, of course, and we just go, man, what I have is rubbish compared to what they have. Our culture feeds this kind of stuff. Marketers earn a living from trying to get us to buy more stuff based on the lie that if you buy that thing, you will finally have contentment. At, at our Burnside campus, we have Professor Akant Veer, who is a professor of marketing at Canterbury University. He is a fascinating guy to talk to about the, the psychology of marketing and how overt marketers are in going, yep, we want to feed the sense of insecurity that people have so that if they feel insecure, they want to buy something to prop up their sense of security and identity. Akant's an amazing guy. He decided straight out of university, he worked for one year in the marketing industry and just went, man, as a follower of Jesus, I can't do this because this is just so not consistent with my values and my beliefs. And so he's decided to kind of use his marketing nous for good in working with non-for-profit organizations to try and raise the awareness of incredible work that the likes of Aviva, the former Women's Refuge, are doing and try and help them with their fundraising kind of thing. So he hasn't sold his soul to the devil. I'll just say that for my friend Akant. <laughs> but covetousness, wanting more, is, is like a drug that will leave you feeling empty ultimately whenever we have a hit. Coveting will kill contentment, but contentment will enable us to control the desire for more. See, check out what the Apostle Paul says. I love this in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. There's some good news wrapped up in that passage of Scripture. Number one, we can learn to be content whatever the situations are, the circumstances of our lives. Paul says, I've learned to be content. What that means is that Paul, like all of us, didn't always have that understanding of how to live in contentment. He had to learn it. We likewise are on a journey of learning how to live with contentment so that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we go, hey, God, by your grace, I am content. 
I'm not caught up with the longing and the wanting and the needing of more. I've learned the secret. So that's good news. We can learn to move forward with this. And ultimately as well, the, the, the good news is that the secret to being content, as Paul puts it, is really no secret. It's not that book called The Secret. Don't go and buy that thinking, oh, maybe Paul got to read The Secret and, and that's how he found out. No, no, Paul was around long before The Secret and Paul's secret is no secret at all. It's just Jesus. He says a secret to being content in any situation is Jesus. He gives us strength to be content. And that is incredibly good news because we don't have to do this alone. It's not like God's just sitting up there going, oh, you lot are so covetousness. You're always wanting your neighbor's donkey all the time. Would you just stop being so horrible? And would you be content? It's God saying, hey, I, I am with you by my spirit. And I want to help develop the character of Christ in you. I want to develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you will know freedom. Because here's the kicker, team. As much as our culture says, yeah, want more, need more, buy more, and all this, contentment and peace and joy in life do not come from accumulating more stuff. That is a lie. Contentment and peace and joy in life come from surrendering to Jesus and, re and realizing that He wants to enable us to be content, whatever's going on around and about us. It's all about Jesus. So some thoughts this morning around how can we cultivate this sense of contentment in our lives? How can we, like Paul, learn how to live with contentment no matter what else is going on around and about us? And this isn't, it's not rocket science, which is great. I'm skeptical of anyone who claims to have a silver bullet theory from Scripture that no one's ever come across before. Just like, hmm, the church has been around for 2,000 plus years. You think you've come up with something that no one's ever seen? Warning, Will Robinson. <laughs> Let Jesus define your identity and the direction of your life. If we're to be people who live in contentment and reign in covetousness in our lives, we've got to allow Jesus to be the one who defines our identity. See, oftentimes if we're honest with ourselves, we find that lurking behind our wanting for more is the feeling that I, I think I'll be more popular, more accepted by others. I'll fit in more. I'll be able to scale the ladder more. It's, it's, it's identity stuff that's wrapped up in the wanting for more. I'm just so grateful to Jesus because he defines my identity so that I don't have to prove myself to anyone. We don't have to win anyone's approval in order to feel important or validated or accepted in life. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you because of the value that you have in his sight. And when we know what it is to ground our identity in that truth, when the temptation to want more stuff comes, I go, hang on, I don't need that in order to feel good about myself. I don't need that in order to know who I am. I don't need more stuff so that people go, oh, wow, nice shoes, you're awesome. Please. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life on the cross for me and for you, we've got to allow the truth of that and the power of that to fill our hearts every day. 
And when our hearts are filled with that sense of who we are in him, there's just no space in our heart for insecurity to creep in there. We know who we are in him. We've got to let Jesus provide our security in life. See, we can want more to increase the sense of security that we have when we face the uncertainty of the future. I can think that I'll have less stress and more confidence about the future if I have a bigger house, bank balance, car, more stuff. What, oh, I can look around and go, yeah, I'm confident because I've got stuff. Well, that's a hollow way to live. And Jesus offers something better. He says, I, I enable you to have a confidence and a peace and a security about your life and your future that's just based on who he is and his promises and what he says. Jesus liberates us from insecurity. He promises to provide for our every need as we trust in him so we don't have to carry the weight of figuring out security for ourselves. Check out what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6. You guys, many of you will know these words. This is from the Passion Translation, a little bit of a twist on a common verse. Jesus said, forsake your worries. Why would you say, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For that's what unbelievers chase after. Doesn't your heavenly Father already know the things your bodies require? So above all, constantly seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. Refuse to worry about tomorrow, but deal with each challenge that comes your way one day at a time. Tomorrow will take care of itself. This is Jesus saying, team, you can trust me. You can trust me with all the worries and the cares and the questions we have about the future and our needs and our family and all that. We can trust Jesus. He says, don't worry. Refuse to give way to worry. And remember that Jesus promises to have your back. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. And the translation says, That's a powerful verse, but it draws out again the fact that there are different ways that we can live our lives. It's possible to seek God first and seek him above all else, and that's what Jesus calls us to. And when we step into it even a little bit, we go, wow, Jesus, this is such an adventure, and you're so faithful, and you're so amazing in the way that you provide. But the danger is that we can get off that track and instead of seeking God first and seeking his kingdom and the priorities of his heart, we end up seeking all this other stuff that our world says is important. And and this is the warning that Jesus is giving. He's saying, don't get sucked into living that way. Don't give in to that covetous spirit of the age that says, "You you need more, you must have this. Jesus says, no, get off that track. And come over here and seek me and look to me. And whenever you have need, you can know that I will not leave you alone, but I will provide for you. He provides everything we need, not everything we want. There's a difference between need and want, and often our frustration comes from defining as a want, as a need, something that is actually just a want. Jesus didn't promise to be the genie in a bottle 
who would provide everything that we could ever wish for or want. He says, I'll put you need as you seek me. And he is an incredible provider. Put your trust in your saviour, in the way that you live your life. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 in the message says, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. See, often covetousness can take this other form where we may not want the stuff that other people have, but maybe we want their life and we want what they're doing. Like we look at them and go, man, if I had that career, if I had that job, if I had that call from God, see, we can even spiritualize this and, and compare God's call to other people and go, man, their call is so much better than mine. Why can't I have that call? Oh, I want that call. It's in Christ we find out who we are, identity, and what we're here for, what we are living for, purpose. And part of what Jesus does is that he enables us to settle in being comfortable in our own skin that he's given us and in running the race that he's given you to run instead of trying to run somebody else's race. It's in Christ we find out who we are and what we are living for. Psalm 107 verse 9. I'm just throwing some great scriptures at you this morning because God's word is so good. Psalm 107 verse 9. For he, God, satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. I love that. See, we all have a, a hunger to know our identity. We all have a hunger within us, not just as Christians. Every human being is created by God with a longing to know who I am and what on earth I'm here for. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he provides answers to those questions. Hallelujah. But without Jesus, we're still left with the longing that we're trying to fill and we have to fill in different ways. And so this is... What we see in our culture, we see people with those same questions and those same longings just trying to satisfy it and find satisfaction from other ways. Let me share with you from the prophet Mick Jagger. He said, I can't get no satisfaction. He repeated, I can't get no satisfaction. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Like, we laugh about it, but that, that's reflective of our culture. That apart from Jesus, what are you left with? You're left with trying to find satisfaction and lots of different things or people promise satisfaction, but they're all charlatans at the end of the day because only Jesus satisfies the longings of the human heart. Money and possessions don't satisfy the longing of your soul. Following your dreams or ambitions won't satisfy the longing in your soul. All the success that this world has to offer will not satisfy your soul apart from Jesus. Because only he can do that. But oh, when we come to him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who says to anyone and everyone, come to me if you're weary and worn out from trying to find satisfaction everywhere else. Come to me and drink of the living water that I provide and you will never thirst again. 
but this living water will bubble up inside of you and it will overflow from your life so that you will share hope. You will share truth with others as you've experienced it and it flows from you. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Allow Jesus every day to remind you of who you are from his perspective. See, we're not left alone to try and develop a sense of identity for ourselves. I'm going to carve my own path and form my own identity. This is one of the, the, the lies in our culture is that we as individuals get to define our own identity. Like that, That's contrary to Scripture. But I get how it happens because when you don't know God, and you don't know him defining your identity, you've still got the longing, and you've got to try and fix that somehow. But we are a people who, by God's grace, have been called to belong to him, to know him, to be secure in him, and then to seek to share that with others. Guard your heart, Proverbs 4.23 says. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Wanting more stuff wanting what other people have got or the life that they're living. Ultimately, it starts in the heart. We've got to guard our hearts so it doesn't creep in there. Gratitude is powerful in guarding our hearts. Let me close with this, this quote this morning. This is from Leslie Newbegin, who is a um, British pastor, missionary, served in India for decades, sharing Jesus and he came back into Western culture and just because of his experience on the mission field in a different cultural context, he was able to see Western culture kind of from a fresh lens. And he said this about us as the church and about how we share our faith with others. He says, it's impossible to stress too strongly that the beginning of mission is not an action of ours, but the presence of a new reality. The presence of the Spirit of God in power. See, the great missionary proclamations we see in the book of Acts are not given on the unilateral initiative of the apostles, but in response to questions asked by others. Questions prompted by the presence of something that calls for explanation. See, in discussions about the contemporary mission of the church, it's often said that the church ought to address itself to the real questions which people are asking. That's to misunderstand the mission of Jesus and the mission of the church. The world's questions are not the questions which lead to life. What really needs to be said is that where the church is faithful to its Lord, there the powers of the kingdom of God are present and people begin to ask the question to which the gospel is the answer. What, is, what does that mean? What do, we make, what, what, what do we draw from that? It's this idea that if we as a people are growing in contentment, growing in the sense of knowing our identity, knowing that our security comes from the Lord and not from ourselves, if we're just living that day in and day out, Whatever circumstances are prevailing, whatever pressures are coming on us, people who don't yet know the Lord look at our lives and go, where does your peace come from? How are you able to not 
get caught up in wanting more and needing more. Like you're living a different life. How is that possible? That's a question that's provoked by seeing a different reality in us as the people of God. And the answer to that question is the gospel. How is it possible for you not to worry about the future? Because I'm not left to figure it out myself. My Saviour, the Son of God has come and taken hold of my life and He promises peace as I trust in Him. So I don't need to worry. Would you like to know this peace too? Jesus provides the answer to the deepest questions and longings of the human heart. And I'm just so excited about us growing in contentment, growing in peace, growing in our identity, and that having such an attractive influence when we're out in our jobs, in our homes, in our communities, just live life with Jesus at the center and people over time will see something different in us. And questions will come opportunities to say it's Jesus who makes the difference. It's not because I'm a better person than you. It's just that Jesus has come and he wants to come for you as well. This has been another great message from Elam Church, Christchurch City. For more content and updates, come see us on our Facebook page or jump over to our website. Thanks so much for listening.